Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on Monday, November 9th, 2020. So, how you doing, Drew? <laughs> it's a real roller coaster of emotion, where this weekend we had a really high high, and now we're sort of coming down to earth and realizing how prolonged and... and potentially upsetting this whole thing is going to be so i am feeling i'm feeling a little bit more like last tuesday than than this past saturday but i'm still i'm still optimistic it'll all get sorted out i mean it it was a very very stressful week but the interesting thing that what came to mind to me is that daniel pinkwater who does the book reviews over in hpr told this great story about the week of 9-11 where every time he turned on the television they kept showing that footage of the towers coming down. Eventually, Daniel was like, I have to get away from this. I have to, to not watch this. And he ended up over on Nickelodeon watching SpongeBob. And the way Daniel talks, SpongeBob was basically his life raft for that couple of weeks where life was terrible. And so I didn't watch Nickelodeon, but I did go over to YouTube And it turns out there are dozens of clips there right now, Drew, for the SpongeBob movie Sponge on the Run. And mind you, you kind of have to treat the movie like a mosaic because you'll get one clip from this part of the movie, another clip from that part of the movie. I guess this comes on the back of Sponge on the Run was released theatrically in Canada in August and then dropped on Netflix on an all territories except the United States back on the 5th. And so, and it's like, dude, did debut here in the States till early 2021, which is when Sponge on the Road first becomes a premium video on demand. And then after that becomes available for viewing through CBS All Access. Which will probably be, be it'll probably be renamed Paramount Plus by then. So we, we even, there we go. <laughs> that's how long this is going to take. To get to get to America, yeah. But based on these clips, through, I really, really, really now want to see Sponge on the Run. Movie is directed and co-written by Tim Hill. No relation. Tim was the original series writer back when SpongeBob SquarePants debuted on Nick back in July of '99. And oh my God, there are so many great set pieces in this thing that there's one piece alone that if you need a laugh, if you need entertainment, go seek this out. There's a bit in the movie. Where, for various reasons, SpongeBob, Patrick, Sandy, Mr. Krabs, Squidward, and Plankton are running away from this group of guards, and they climb into this giant suit of armor, all of them, and they all settle into different parts of the suit of armor, and they then proceed to battle the guards as this coordinated attack inside of the suit of armor, and it is just one of the funniest pieces of staging I've seen in years, and also just bit of a rendering this thing is crazy good and then to sort of add to you know have you heard about keanu reeves in this thing i mean i saw that he was a sage sagebrush uh in the trailer so (laughs) he's an all-knowing sage who as the movie goes on gets less and less patient with spongebob and patrick and i I really 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 don't want to blow too much of this movie. I, so, to be honest, given the millions of clips that are on YouTube right now, it, it's getting blown quite well. I will say this much. Lots and lots of scenes set at Camp Coral. So it, it, looking at this, you can't help but think, okay, this was meant to introduce the 
spinoff series Camp Coral, uh, Sp- SpongeBob's Under Years. But is that supposed to be hand drawn or CG? Because I've seen renderings of the characters in both formats. I thought it was CG, but maybe not. I mean, if you've seen it, seen artwork, but that could have just been pre production okay. artwork. Okay. Yeah, but I thought it was CG. That's what I'd always heard, but I have no idea. Seriously, this movie deserves to be celebrated. Uh, but on the other hand, the film's director, Tim Hill, uh, just can't hide his disappointment. He was interviewed by Looper earlier in the year saying, it's terrible. I was hoping for a big fanfare and a great premiere and seeing all the people I worked with and doing a cast and crew screening, being able to at least thank people. And that never happened. It was just like we're doing now. Bye. Movie's over. It, it doesn't feel natural. But seriously, folks, you need a lift. Go over to YouTube. Weren't you just saying that the whole movie's there in like 30 little parts or? Yeah, I never would tell anyone to watch a bootlegged movie, but you can watch the whole thing <laughs> on YouTube. So I'm not going to say that that's what I'm going to do when the show's over, but okay. I might. So uh, stay TBD for those thoughts. Yeah, that would be a very not a very nice thing to do. And speaking no. of things that are not necessarily very nice to do, but but still entertaining did you see what alex hirsch did this weekend oh yeah i love i love Alex. all right well do you want to tell the story about what he did (laughs) yeah well as you know the trump campaign is launching this insane very stupid hotline where you're supposed to call and and talk about if you've seen voter fraud and so he decided to call I, you say that it's Zeus. I think it's it's Zeus-like voice and talking about how he saw the Hamburglar uh, come into a uh, voting booth and steal some some uh, votes. But it's so funny. What's great is Alex peels the onion slowly, and it's like, well, I saw a guy. I get you know, it. He was had a black hat, and he was wearing a mask, right? And he had a striped shirt. He had a striped <laughs> shirt on, <laughs> yeah. and you know, he was stuffing votes in a bag while saying "rumble, rumble." And it's like, <laughs> right? And then to end it with, and can I now speak to Giuliani? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh, oh, yes. And he does it again with the Uncle Stan uh. voice, and he actually says, "My name is, you know, Stan Pines," and it's great. And then. Today, the uh, Washington Post wrote up this whole farce and included Alex's prank calls in their write-up, which is so great. So, yeah. Check that out. Another little smile. Well, again, that's the Washington Post. That's the news. And and again, uh, speaking of the news, the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of fine-tuning. For a worry-free travel experience, book online at storybookdestinations.com. So it's been a week to give you the fields, the high highs, the low lows. And speaking of the fields, where did you find this Make-A-Wish commercial from Disney? When when did that bubble up? It was on uh, Twitter. Obviously, I, I sort of follow a lot of similarly minded folk. Mm-hmm. But Jim, do you have any insight into why Christmas commercials mm-hmm. are such a big deal in England? Yes, it seems like every year there is the commercial. Now, mind you, yes. a lot of companies compete for the commercial. Right. This one for Make-A-Wish, it's honoring the 40th year that Disney has partnered with Make-A-Wish. It prominently features a Mickey plush, which evidently when a child arrives at the Give Kids the World Village, they're gifted a, a Mickey plush. Yeah, it's a Filipino family, too, in the short, which is uh, very interesting and great. Just go see it and bring Kleenex. Yes. 
But I will tell you that, and this may be crossing over into your mm. show with Shelly, mm. but you can buy that plush with the traditional Filipino star on the bottom of Mickey's foot oh. on the Disney store right now. So, yes, if you are really, if you really want to prolong mm. that, those feels, you can now, do that. Now, speaking of which, as long as we're plugging charities and, and the season, Nancy and I were at the Disney store to see what they had going into the holidays. And it turns out because of just how miserable 2020 is, obviously the Toys for Tot collection places can't operate the way they normally do during a pandemic. So the Disney store has actually stepped up. They become a collection point for Toys for Tots. And not only that, every time a toy is donated, Disney will donate a toy plus give a dollar to Toys for Tots. That's great. And I, I got to tell you, in, in normal circumstances, I would have a lot of toys from junkets mm. and things like that. And it's always hard to figure out where they are. I usually walk down to uh, Warner mm. Brothers um, and drop it off there. But it's great to know that they're doing that because sometimes you have a lot of yeah. stuff and you just don't know where to drop it off. So that's great. Now to pivot to the Aardman ad, we shoehorn two franchises in there. We get Wallace and Gromit, and we also get the Shaun the Sheep character. Which was a spinoff of Wallace and Gromit. We have to, you know. Was it Close Shave or which one? Uh, yeah, it was Close Shave. Okay. Yeah. But I was looking at the ad, and I wonder how successful an ad is when you finish watching the ad. And again, this is an ad for the UK, and I'm sure people in the UK and all already know what DFS is. But I was watching the ad, and I thought it was for a heating company. You actually got it in one. Yes. Well, I looked at the acronym, and I used my deduction skills, Jim, and I said, oh, this must be some kind of discount furniture store, which you told me is exactly what it stands <laughs> That's for. Right. So I That's feel, right. Okay. I feel smart, Jim. Thank you so much for, you know, validating me. I went the other way. Poor Gromit is outside freezing. He looks inside of this family around a fire, and I just thought, discount furnace company. I, eh, I was wrong. Here's my question. Was that Peter Solace that is the voice because it sounds he retired from the character a few years ago go but that really sounds like him yeah. oh, doesn't it we'll have to pick we'll, we'll. okay i've got it i've already found out it's the guy named ben whitehead oh okay right. because i guess peter solace mm -hmm. is dead so that is uh this is me realizing things on air jim <laughs> i thought he was still alive uh but he's dead and he's got a great replacement because i could not tell really the difference so which animated character did they do was it wasn't it the mickey short cg with eric oldberg yes get a horse the idea was it was all going to be walt's voice and yeah i want to say they were able to get every word except red Yes, correct. There we go. And it, some sound person sat in a room and micro-sliced yeah. words that Walt said to form the word red. So they could have done the same thing with Peter. They could have gone, uh, all right. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not willing to climb out on that limb with you. All right. So <laughs> speaking of cold things, okay, so we got the teaser for Fox's The Great North, which is supposed to debut in 2021 as part of Fox's animation domination, right? Yeah, they were like, it's a new member of Animation Domination. Did you watch the, the Simpsons Halloween episode, by the way, this year, Jim? With the Pixar parody? Yes. 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 Yeah. The, the weird part of it is, is once you sort of zeroed in on, on what they were doing, I mean, it was a wonderful Venn diagram. They really did get 
that Pixar feel to the animation. I want to know the story there. I want to know, especially now that Disney and Pixar and Fox are all one big happy family, did they actually have conversations about, can we use your software? Can you tell us how you did the stuff for Toy Story 4? It just had a beautiful feel to it. Yeah, I love when they also go into different mediums. Obviously, there was the famous CG episode where Homer is in the Uh, CG world from, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Remember that Homer ends up in the real world and he's, ooh, erotic cakes. And it's like, I couldn't help but think that that store was probably around the corner from Four Seasons Landscaping. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So what did you think from the Great North thing? I mean, face it, it's going to be hard to top. Bob's Burgers, or, or for that matter, Central Park. Uh, by the way, do we do we have an ETA on season two of that yet? No, we're going to have to get Josh back on the show, I think. Because Josh created it with Lauren and Nora Smith. And, and speaking of things that are going to be hard to top, all right, how are we going to talk about the end of season one of Primal? Rage of the Ape Men. How are we going to talk about this without giving away... No, well, this new one is Slave of the Scorpion. Rage of the Ape Man oh, was that's the right. last one. Yeah, okay, yeah. my mistake. Okay, because Rage of the Ape Man last year, an amazing cliffhanger. Now Slave of the Scorpion, same thing. Amazing place to leave the story. Yes, we can. It, it is a huge cliffhanger. I just think that the second batch of episodes, each one got better and better and mm-hmm. better than the one before it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just amazing. The storytelling, the assuredness in that storytelling... The visuals, I just thought the whole thing was amazing. I can't wait for it to come back. It's going to be a long wait. Yeah, it is. It is. But speaking of not wanting to give away things, The Art of Soul became available for purchase back on October 27th, and I ordered a copy. Having read the book already, the, The Art of Soul, I have to say, it is no Art of Onward. Which, by the way, folks, Black Friday special over at Amazon right now. You can pick up a copy of The Art of Onward. Less price, $40. It's available right now for $17.99. Go get it, people. Yes. So <laughs> so anyway, all right. What can we say about Soul? I've seen Soul. So that's what Jim is is hinting at, is that I've, I've watched it. I've seen it twice now. Mm-hmm. I did the junket today. I mean, I'm all over Soul. Mm-hmm. And Jim, you came out of the, the gate before we we started talking, and you spoiled the big twist of the movie, which I will not do. Okay, here. I'm sorry. I will it's, not do it. I read the book. It's there. I can't believe you deduced that from the book, because his, his art of books are typically much more art focused than some of the other ones like the one that I did which was has a lot of text. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm just impressed you kind of put things together. Maybe it was you watching the SpongeBob movie piecemeal on there YouTube. There we go. There it, we but, go. Yes. Okay. Well, the thing I want to convey is that this is the most mature Pixar movie. It is it deals with really heavy stuff mm-hmm. um, in a really wonderful light Pixar-y way. Mm-hmm. But Pixar is so infamous for its commitment to story and everything tying up every loose end, you know, there are no seams. And this movie really embraces kind of the messiness of life and the kind of weird tangents that you go on and the conversations that you have walking down the street. And it's really beautiful for that. It's incredibly powerful. And it's just one of my favorite things I've seen all year. I know that is admittedly a low bar to clear, considering there were about three movies released this year, but it is, um, 
you know, it's a really special movie. And I think that people are going to have really wonderful, you know, memories this year of gathering around the, the TV at Christmas and watching Soul. You will cry. So just bear that in mind. Okay. But uh, okay. it's really wonderful. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of wonderful pieces of animation, and again, th- th- thanks to Drew who, who found this, but Greenpeace has a great ad out right now called There's a Monster in My Kitchen. It's only, what, two minutes long, if that? Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's, a, it's about kind of um, the dangers of industrial farming, basically, and a monster that's slowly revealed to be a cougar mm-hmm. from the jungle, mm-hmm. and it's directed by Tom Moore, yep. who we will soon be talking to mm-hmm. and it's uh, animated by cartoon saloon and it actually plays in front of wolf walkers in some territories. Does it really? Uh, okay. Yeah. Around the world. Yeah. When I talked to him uh, ahead of its premiere at Toronto, they were just finishing the short. So okay. it's very moving too, I think. And yeah, it's really wonderful. Okay. Well, uh, definitely check that out. And speaking again of the folks at, at cartoon saloon, when you come back for the second half of the, the show, folks, boy, do we have a treat to you that we, we're going to get to talk with the folks who are working on cartoon saloons, big new project, Wolfwalkers. You have a piece up this week on Collider about chicken little. That is such a great piece of writing. Is it, this week that it's the 15th anniversary? I think it was last week, but I think we didn't want to publish it on the date because, you know, yeah. I, people people had other things to worry about last week. They but did. yeah, we, we, it went up today. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you reading, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, it, t- it took a lot to kind of fuse all these kind of jagged edges together to tell this story because it really is an important movie in the history of the company mm-hmm. and was made in a completely horrible turbulent time for the for animation i think the thing that i hadn't put together that you put it out so well is think about it mark dindell and and randy fulmer had just come off of the emperor's new groove which had been the hindenburg of animation the fact that the the kingdom of the sun the movie that they were trying to make there the the important film just kind of imploded and the fact that they were able to take the pieces of that movie and make as entertaining a film as The Emperor's New Groove is. And so, you know, here were these two guys who had survived that. And now, okay, we're going to, you know, get the chance to make our movie. And and the way you tell the story about, you know, here's Mark Dindale, you know, the, the father of daughters and so anxious to make a movie that stars a little girl. And look who they were going to have voice the little girl. Yeah, it was going to be Holly Hunter and Penn Jillette was going to be in it. And um, yeah, I mean, it was sort of like you pulled off the impossible. Now do it again, mm-hmm. because they it was sort of sabotaged halfway through by Michael Eisner and they had to rebuild. And, they and, you know, they said to me, mm-hmm. you know, we had just as much time in the end to finish this as we did Emperor's New Groove. And at the same time, we're teaching everyone how to use CGI mm-hmm. and rebuilding the story and dealing with David Statham Staten, who was the third manager they'd had in three years, you know, and it's like, it was just a tough thing. But I want to tell people too, that I, I talked to Mark, Mark Dindell mm-hmm. and I talked to Randy Fulmer mm-hmm. and I actually also talked to them about Emperor's New Groove, which is celebrating an anniversary in December. So you are going oh. to hear stories you have never heard before. Oh, including if I can just tease Jim at one point, 
he uh, and who was the original director on the the Kingdom of the Sun? Oh, uh, it was Roger Allers. There we go. Okay. Okay. So Mark was the co-director with Roger, mm-hmm. and at one point the the production shut down, and Roger pitched one version of the movie, and Mark pitched another version of the movie, and neither one knew that the other was pitching their version. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's one of the stories, Jim, that you're going to get out of this, but, I mean, the statute of limitations on spilling tea has expired, so get ready for that. Wow. Okay, well, I can't wait for that one, but seriously, folks, if you want a great read about an amazing time in Disney Studios, this arrived in theaters... November of 2005, and literally six weeks later, Disney buys Pixar, and the world right. changes, which anybody who listened to our Hunter show, by the way, which had wonderful, you know, uh, you know uh, Bob Hilgenberg, uh, you know, who came on the show and talked, gave us all the history of, of Circle 7, you know, uh, studios, you know, that was going on at the same time that poor Chicken Little was trying to arrive in theaters. Yeah. But. Steve Jobs was, you know, making scandalous remarks in the paper about eyes. I mean, it was oh, it, it was crazy. Yeah. But anyway, crazy. check check out the story. It, it, it'll give you an appreciation for what Chicken Little is, and it'll help you understand maybe some of its shortcomings. So, yeah. And remember, in this same window of time is when Pixar's Cars comes out. And uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the old uh, NBR show Card Talk with Click and Clack the Tappet Brothers, Tom and Ray Maliazzi. But we lost, of course, Tom again a few years back, but his brother has continued the show. Uh, they kind of do a best of, but he also has been doing a newspaper column. And just recently, somebody wrote to him and said, is there a story behind the cars that, that Tom and Ray were depicted in the Cars movies? And Tom actually shares this story. Yeah, there is a story behind those cars. You know, uh, Pixar was making the original Cars movie. They called and they asked us to be in it. John Lasseter was very into cars and wanted to know what about meaningful cars we'd had in our life. So in this case, my brother Tom, uh, he chose his then current car, which is a 63 Dodge Start convertible, uh, which would rust on the windows and a family of raccoons that lived in the back. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Ray, he had, I have fond memories of my 67 Dodge A100 window van. And they were talking about, well, how do we make these characters different? And back when the 70s, there was this company called Earl Scheib that would paint a car for $49.99. So anyway, that's that's where Dusty and Rusty, the Rusty's brothers, came from. That there was a combination of Ray and Tom's favorite cars from when they were kids and them paying tri- tribute to Earl Scheib, you know, I'll paint your car for forty nine ninety nine. So we now make the awkward transition from rusty cars to wolves. Here's the transition. Okay. You're the only person in the world still reading a physical newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and now we are going to ancient Ireland. So this is the, this okay. is the, you know, we're, we're going back in time, Jim. That's right. I'm sitting here surrounded by pieces of parchment. <laughs> yes. And stone yes. tablets. Okay, good. Yeah. Please, please. All right. Um, yes, we are going to talk to Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, who directed Wolfwalkers, the amazing new cartoon saloon film, traditionally animated plus computer animation, and a crazy 
international production between Cartoon Saloon and Miss Mel Usine Productions, which is a Luxembourg-based company. And this is just one of my favorite animated movies of the year. It's going to be on Apple TV Plus on December 11th. And uh, so we are going to talk with them for a little while about this uh, brand new movie. I love what I've seen of Wolfwalkers so far. It is, you know, I mean, again, I'm a huge fan of the Kells, likewise Song of the Sea, but oh my God, this one's amazing. I love the tie back to the Salem Witch Trials, how you guys <laughs> kind of use that as your, yeah. your jumping off point. Uh, by the way, before I forget, Ross, I know you worked on Paranorman, you know, did some art direction on that one, and you guys absolutely nailed Salem, Massachusetts. You, you, you got that, <laughs> that depressed community that something happened 300 years ago down cold, you know. <laughs> so. I remember Chris and Nelson and Sam, uh, they went over there on like a fact-finding mission, and they brought back Loads of photos of beautiful forests, but loads of photos of really decrepit buildings wow. and things falling apart. And they're like, that's what we need to do. In there. <laughs> oh, you just, I mean, seriously, you know, there, there's that scene where Norman is walking down the street. And I swear to God, that's the street my aunt lives on. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so. But uh, it was interesting when we were doing research for this, that anybody from Kilkenny around Salem at the time was immediately under suspicion of being a werewolf. Like, because of the stories. And we didn't know that those stories were so prevalent back then. I was a little tidbit that stuck out because Ross had just finished working on Paranormal. I remember coming across that in our research. Yeah, we did a lot of research into the witch trials and witchcraft and a lot of dark areas. And we had to just steer away. Yeah, there was witch burnings and stuff in early drafts. And there were witch burnings here in Kilkenny. Yeah. But all of that stuff was way too dark for where we wanted to go. And we kind of focused on the, they're called the wolf people of Ossery or the man wolves of Ossery which is the area that includes Kilkenny. It was like the old medieval kind of area. Um, and th- th- those folktales are so localized to this area and they're so connected to the wolves that were exterminated by the English at that time that a lot of the folktales have been kind of forgotten as well. You know, One of the films that we watched for research actually was The Witch. You know that, um, I think it came oh, yeah. out about maybe four or five mm-hmm. years ago. Just the, the Puritan dress and costumes and the whole world that they live in is just like exactly of the time. But I remember some of our storyboarders who had just started working and the concept artists. What the hell kind of movie are you making? Yeah, we sat with them in front of the witch and were like, now nah, watch this. You know, for kids. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you clearly delineate the world, that sort of woodblock, angular, gray and brown palette for the town. And then, but when you step out into the forest, I mean, it's this lovely, lush fall colors and the rounded shapes and all that. You do such a nice job of delineating the two worlds the story's told in. Well, when, like as we were developing the story, we were also developing the visual style in tandem with that. And like it became pretty clear that we needed two contrasting worlds, you know, one that represented the the control and the cage of Robin, and then the other one that represented this freedom and, and life and like instinct of the wolves. And each decision visually had to re- had to reinforce that contrast. So when Tom and myself were were even doing concept really, really early on, we were developing these the, like this harsh angular woodcut uh, style for the town and this rounded beautiful kind of free-flowing impressionistic color of the of the forest and and trying to see how far we could push them apart but also keep them in the same world you know like there's a very fine line to 
to go there. If they had been too different looking, then it would have seemed like she was walking into a dream or something like that. So they had to be rooted in the same world that way. I wanted to ask about the approach to magic because I love it. Um, and if this was an American movie, there would be a 10 minute exposition dump of somebody going, well, when she's asleep, she becomes a wolf and this yeah. and that, you know, and you allow the characters to kind of discover the kind yeah. of mythology for themselves. Was that a, a deliberate decision? And, and how did you kind of figure out how to parcel out the information through the movie? That came after several and I don't think I've done a movie yet that didn't have an exposition intro written and storyboarded that we cut. I don't know why. I mean, really? I've, I've always looked at, you know, like Watership Down has that lovely uh, Aboriginal style opening that explains everything. But yeah, we kind of just realized that we wanted to discover everything with Robin. So all you get is that little hint at the beginning. And there's a version of it that we did in the comic books of what was planned as the intro to why it all is. And then Apple made a little, well, we helped them with it. They made a little prologue teaser thing to explain it on social media because yeah, in the movie, we just kind of dump people in it and you have to keep up. And I think that's kind of fun too. Yeah, I feel well, like it, Ghibli do that a lot. Yeah. You know? and, and it puts you in her position too, right? Yeah. yeah. She's, she's discovering. You're not ahead of her. Right. And also there's also, there's a couple of things that like you don't actually figure out or, or understand how it works. Like the magic vines. Like, right. yeah. How the hell do they work? <laughs> we, had, we had a whole, we had a whole, we had a whole reason for that. And again, you just sort of let it feel right. And it happened with Song of the Sea as well. We had this whole bit in Song of the Sea where the fairies in the roundabout explained it, the rules of why she needed to get her go. And we realized it's not important. It's real adult sort of thinking, kid thinking, dreamlike thinking. It just flows the emotion, what's needed, what needs to happen, happens. And I think hand-drawn animation allows you to do that. I don't think live action would be as forgiving. And then I think like uh, when we were working with Will Collins, uh, the scriptwriter, um, the three of us really hate that exposition stuff where it's so yeah. obvious that you're speaking to the audience like, oh, what is this place? Oh, yeah. this must be a magic fortress. And yeah. why are we here? So like, <laughs> we want to steer clear as, uh, from that as much as possible. And like stuff can be explained, but in terms of like dialogue between characters, like, you know, like... But we had built it in, we built a lot of the ex- exposition in to a parallel story of Maeve and her mom and why her mom had to go off and how she got captured and everything. And in the end, we had to strip that all back and we only discovered at the same time Robin does. Mm. So I guess I guess if we did a longer movie or if it was a serial or something, we could have gone in that direction. But yeah, I like, it. I like it in Ghibli movies when they do that. They just dunk you in and then you're like, oh, that can happen. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you test these movies on kids? I mean, are, yeah. You, okay. So yeah. you, you make sure that they can at least keep up with things. Oh yeah. And okay. usually you have, we haven't changed things too dramatically, luckily, but we would know, we would note if they didn't understand something or something needed to be clear. One of the things that came back from the first test screening is that the kids didn't actually understand that Robin was English and that she was from England. They didn't, catch that and we thought it was really obvious from the costume the accent and everything so we kind of laid that in a bit thicker with the bullies early on when they kind of say english girl and listen to her fancy accent and stuff so but other than that the kids you know they swallow it whole there was one kid who said there was too much drama yeah too much drama (laughs) 
was, that was one of our most harsh critics from early on, you know. So. <laughs> These are great critics because they're honest, you know. <laughs> well, no, no. Speaking of the early iterations of, of the film, I saw that at one point or very, very early on, Robin was a boy. Yeah. Uh, how long did, did that stick? Well, not really into even boards. Like we had designs for her as a boy, but even in the script or the second draft of the script, we realized it just wasn't working. We were creating conflict that didn't naturally exist in that world for him to not be allowed to go hunting for him to. Not. And once it became a girl, it had a whole other layer of the theme of becoming who you need to be against society telling you not to made so much more sense with a little girl in that time period. So a lot of things clicked into place. And also the contrast between a kind of semi-imagined pagan matriarchy that we were setting up on one side and then the Puritan patriarchy all made so much more sense if it was a little girl caught between those two worlds rather than a little boy. Mm. So um, didn't last too long. And I was kind of relieved because it would have been the third time we'd done. I remember Nora saying it to me, like, are you trying to say something about... <laughs> little boy like little human boy and a little magic girl so i was like oh yeah that is a bit lame to do that again so and also if if robin had been a boy lord protector would have written out and gone is this your son he's going to help you with the wolf yeah that's what i mean that's that's what i mean like it was it was wrong wrong headed at the start that we thought that way but i'm glad we kept the robin goodfellow name because i thought it was fun even if it was a girl and robin works for both a boy or a girl so you want to talk about um, how you pulled off the wolf vision? Uh, Jim and I were talking before the show, and he was as equally stunned as I was by those sequences. Yeah, it's, it's magic. It is. <laughs> the thing that's particularly impressive, as great as it looks, when I heard the story about how you guys did it, it's like, oh, my God, it looks great. And it was also impossible. I mean, you know, yeah, it was how, insane. Yeah. It was crazy. But I think there's a kind of masochistic aspect to animators that they mm. they take great pleasure in saying how complicated and difficult it was to do something. Mm. It's part of the war stories that animators trade in, in the pub afterwards. Yeah, you know? like for the trailer that we did, like uh, maybe five years back, we had this amazing animator, Emmanuel Basquiat. Is that how yeah. you pronounce the second yeah. name? And, um, and he, he like did this fly through of a forest, but he did it all with like animating a, a grid, a geometric grid first, and then going in and doing all the trees on top of it. And like, he's just like a, like a genius with that. And that took ages to do, but we, we, we kind of didn't want to make it like so, so insane, insane, insanely like, terrible for animators yeah. to have to like actually like do this. We're not uh, we're not VR. Japanese animation directors yeah, like VR we are environment. we are so, like human. <laughs> yeah. So so like working with uh, Evan McNamara who who um, works with uh, Paper Panther Studios up in Dublin. He does a lot of traditional media approach to animation and uh, uh, he's quite inventive. You know, like in terms of like using craft um, and technology to to uh, explore new new types of animation. So he. He, we have footage of him actually trying on these VR goggles, and it was the first time that he had worked in VR, um, and he was um, painting these trees and this landscape just in a VR um, uh, program. And then he would do a camera previs fly-through, and then each frame would get printed out, and then they would all be rendered background character and effects Lord, look at that. so that's just a few that's just a few seconds of it yeah Aww. but each frame is a full background yeah drawn in pencil so we have a big stack of these downstairs yeah. and like every every page is like something that you could probably frame so 
it's a huge labor of love for that team. And it was only three minutes of the film, but it took about nearly the whole length. Of yeah, the because film. any one of those pages would be the amount of work that would go into an average background, you know, just the drawing part. Mm-hmm. Does, does doing an, a completely CGI feature hold any appeal to either of you? No. No. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to tell any war stories. <laughs> Be too easy. <laughs> but, look, well, speaking of war stories, I mean, I love that you made Oliver Cromwell the villain. What was it? In 2002, he was voted one of the top 10 Britons of all time. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. You know, that's what they think. There was a communal outrage that just <laughs> lifted up from Ireland at that time. That it was, <laughs> what? He's, he's our Adolf Hitler and he's their Braveheart. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I think we we backed away from calling yeah. him Oliver Cromwell. People yep. know that it's Cromwell, and he gets referred to as Ironsides, and he has the warts and everything. But mm-hmm. he's an aspect of Cromwell. He's a, he's a a colonial Puritan force mm-hmm. imposing itself on the wilderness. So he's a, a fairy tale distillation of Cromwell, not the complex creature that he was, darling man that he was. Yeah, because like I mean, um, like historically, Cromwell did. Um, said about the extermination of wolves in Ireland and he used to um, re- offer rewards of five pounds for a wolf's head or a wolf's pelt like he, he literally wanted them all wiped out from the island because he saw it as part of a, a symbol of how uncivilized the country was that they still had wolves the wolves were already extinct in the UK um, and then also- that was news to us like we knew he was pretty brutal in Ireland but we didn't realize at the start of our research that he was instrumental in like symbolically taming the country by exterminating wolves so we thought that was pretty interesting and he also chopped down a lot of the native woodlands like Ireland only has less than 10% of, of woodland covering the country it's really low by European standards and a lot of that is traced back to that time so for our for our story of wolf walkers of the woods being cut down and the wolves being exterminated he was the perfect villain aside from the fact that he's he is the villain of ireland like you know historically you know like he caused so much uh, yeah, there's uh, curses horror. and stuff it was kind of fun to read old curses made a curse of cromwell be upon you yeah <laughs> But we didn't want to get drawn too much into the historical sites yeah. because then you start annoying historians and you know no one wants to do that Last time I checked, we chatted, we, you guys were working on that little short, um, I think you were like in the midst of it and now it's out. And I just wanted to say how wonderful it was. Um, and can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, as we're chatting, um, there's posters for it over there. We were doing some press on it a few weeks ago. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's sad that it like that. It's so relevant. You know, I think I said that to you before that the Jaguar could almost be the the modern day equivalent of the wolf in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, yeah, it's the same. It's the same story, and it's still happening. And there's still that in Bolsonaro. You see another, you know, autocratic leader who's using a lot of the worst impulses of people to motivate them. And uh, we're losing a lot more than the Jaguar when we lose the Amazon. You know, even if it's sad in itself. So I mean, I'm glad that we made the film, and I'm glad it's out there. And I think it's 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 forcing a conversation hasn't been easy i've had plenty of people come after me on twitter i think it's 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 hard for people to hear uh, that they're somehow implicit in what's going on there but uh, we're all responsible unfortunately for um the destruction of the amazon and the wild places it's just some something is still stirred up in our consumerist colonial culture that 
that still things, seems to think that nature is ours to to just exploit rather than to um, live alongside and respect. So it's a beautifully observed and animated jaguar. But but at the same time, the wolves. I've got to tell you, we have a wolf sanctuary here in New England that I periodically get go down to, and you guys nailed the wolves. I mean, I love. There's a, just a little short scene where uh, they maybe is, is is unsure and she's in wolf form and you flatten her ears and her tail wraps around her feet. And it's just sort of like, that's dead on from what mm-hmm. they do in the wolf sanctuary. I mean, how much research and, and that sort of thing did you guys do? Well, I don't know if you, if you stayed to watch the end of the credits, but there's a little thing, wolf consultants. Mm-hmm. And they're all the studio dogs that are in, <laughs> in Cartoon Saloon uh, from, from big to small, you know, and all sizes in between. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, a lot of the animators here and a lot of the storyboarders. They have like they have their own dogs and they love dogs and they're they're always watching the behaviors as well. Mm-hmm. And then as part of that, part of the production of Wolf Walkers, we had Aaron Blaze do workshops here. We had really um, James oh, Baxter yeah. do a workshop. Yeah, James um, animated a couple of scenes and Aaron helped with the early designs. So they're like super quadruped expert animators and that was exciting for the animators there but we also had really great animators yeah. here that you know maybe they didn't work on big fancy disney movies but they've dedicated themselves to that kind of animation and um yeah, yeah and like then, anita is amazing yeah like, and then even, observation even like looking at like we all looked at research videos um you know of like of canine and lupine behavior and seeing what they do like the play bow and like yeah. you know the thing of the flattening the ears and there's so like they express their emotions much more physically than we do, you know, with, with their anatomy. So I think it was like part of the entire team really focused on that and wanted to get it accurate. Just out of interest, is that Wolf Sanctuary, the Wolf Conservation Center? I believe that is the name. This is the one in Beverly, Massachusetts. Uh, Wolf Hollow, I, I want to say. Uh, I think the one that I was talking about is in New Jersey. I went uh, to one in Alberta in Canada and they just fed all the wolves. So they were all just sleeping. <laughs> And like, it was a long drive. I was at a music oh. festival in Vancouver and I drove for like a day. And then oh. I got to the Wolf Sanctuary and they were all like, were you one of those like spectators? Go and wake them up. <laughs> yeah. I drove all day, poked them with a stick. Ah, my arm. <laughs> well, I know this was a five-year journey, but have you started thinking about what's next? Or is it just like, no way? Yeah, we're we're lucky. This is the first time for me that I haven't had to have another project go to keep the studio alive because the studio is busy. We have the Puff and Rock feature in production. We have Nora's movie for Netflix, My Father's Dragon, and um, a big TV series for Apple. So we're like busy as heck. So it's good for me and Ross. We can take a bit of a breather before we decide what we do next. Mm. Get that Apple cash. I love to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> stacking that paper thank you guys so much it's always a pleasure uh to chat with you and uh love the movie so much so thank you so much thanks guys by the way folks wolf walkers will be out in theaters this weekend thanks to the folks at g kids it's going to be uh in theaters from friday november 13th through sunday november 15th on the other hand if you have an apple tv it's going to debut over there on september 11th by the way wolf walkers is the very first animated feature to launch on apple tv plus and a side note here for a film that celebrates Ireland, you know, it's it's kind of tough that Wolf Walker's theatrical release in Ireland has been laid to later this year due to the fact that the cinemas over there are closed due to COVID. But 
they can take advantage of the Wolfwalkers graphic novel, which becomes available on December 1st. Samuel Satin did the adaptation, and it features an introduction and exclusive artwork by the film creator Tom Moore, as well as the co-art director, uh, Maria Pargis. All right. Well, in December, between that on the 11th and Soul dropping on the 25th, uh, lots of good stuff. So, and speaking of lots of good stuff, that that if you you follow Drew at all, you know about his Light Diffuse podcast, which pays tribute to the uh, the history of not only the Mission Impossible film series, but also the television show. And you know, just I, I'm just amazed at the people you get to come on this podcast. So, <laughs> so are we, Jim? So are we? <laughs> all right. So, so what have we got coming up now? Uh, this week, well, this week we'll have the second part of our Jacino interview. Mm-hmm. I think this is the one where he tells the story about Space Mountain. Uh, so everyone's going to want to hear that. It's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we still, I think we have Leslie Ann Warren coming up. We have Greg Grunberg. Um, we have a lot. Of, we have so many episodes banked. Mm-hmm. It's really astounding. But um, yeah, so we are just going to keep on going. And then we'll have the Light, Light the Wick miniseries. Mm-hmm. Next year. So, uh, yeah, get ready for that. Okay. And have you started work yet on the Top Gun stuff, or is that... No, we're going to have to do that closer to release. Although I did just talk to Joseph Kaczynski a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm working on a huge... If you thought my Chicken Little story Mm. was robust, Mm -hmm. Jim, wait until my Tron Legacy story, Mm. uh, because I have uncovered it all, and it is great. Um, And so I've talked to so many people, including Joe... And so that'll be coming in December on Collider. So get ready for that. Killer, killer, killer. Okay, well, we also do a few things over here at at Jim Hill Media. Uh, We got Disney Dish with Lentesta. We got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We got Marvel Us Disney, the podcast I do with Aaron Adams. Uh, Likewise, we have Looking at Lucim with Dan Z. And I want that with uh, Shelly Valladolid. If you get head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only Light the Fuse, but also the podcast you're listening to right now, Fine Tuning, uh, that would be very, very helpful. Uh, Likewise, if you really, really, really like what you heard here tonight, uh, if you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media. And Nancy also wants me to remind you guys that if you go on Facebook and find us at Jim Hill Media News. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back soon.